So how many, how many times do you guys think you've heard the Easter story? Four, 40 times? 60 times? Some of you, hey, maybe some of you 80 times, huh? Or more. Because I'm guessing that most of you have, have heard it off and on all of your lives, uh, and that's a good thing. But it can also be a problem because as the old axiom goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And, and if not quite contempt, since of course this is a, a holy day and we're all Christian people, Let's at least admit that familiarity can numb our senses on a day like today. Uh, where after you've heard the story of Easter repeated for the umpteenth time, it can become pretty routine. Uh, it can become pretty predictable. As, as you listen to me drone on one more Easter message to add to your list while you desperately try to stay awake in kind of this mind-numbing uh, muddle of early mornings, combined with the blood sugar rush that's just about to set in on some of you guys uh, from your, your breakfast of marshmallow peeps and chocolate bunnies that I, know you've been, that I know you've been nibbling on all morning, whether you have kiddos around the house or not, because uh, somebody is buying that stuff in this retirement town besides me, right? So, some of you, and that's a problem all by itself. Uh, but my point is, if we're not careful, our Christian faith can easily amount to little more than going through the motions where the transforming power of the resurrection is dumbed down to a routine event rather than the catalyst for a new life that it was meant to be. And so my challenge to myself today and to you is to come at the Easter story not in the same old way that you may be expecting. Because church, the truth of Easter is not so much a repetition of an already familiar text as it is the acknowledgement that the resurrection of Jesus is a true story. It's a true story with a message that's just as timely as the moment it happened. And so I want to start us off with kind of a, a flashback all the way to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that our lectionary year focuses on. And then, then from there, I want to show you not only uh, how Luke came to know what he knew about the resurrection, but why it still matters today. And so we're going to start out this morning probably in a place you weren't expecting. If you're following along in your Bibles, and I hope you are, we're looking at Luke Chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through verse 4. So Luke chapter 1, 1 to 4. And Luke writes, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this Holy Resurrection Sunday. We thank you for this opportunity to stand in this place, Father, uh, where we can not only retell but relive the story of the great salvation you provided for us and your Son. And so we ask you, Father, uh, to lend us your Holy Spirit this morning to drive away uh, any thoughts that may be uh, leading us away from you and keep our hearts and our eyes and our minds focused on you and on your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, when Luke set out to write his gospel account in about A.D. 60, so, so we're talking about like 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he wasn't so much writing a book as composing a letter. And as you just heard, he's writing to a, a newish convert to the faith, a high official named Theophilus. 
to make sure he has all of his facts straight about the life and work of Jesus. Not only for himself and his own personal edification and instruction, but before he goes out and shares that faith in the marketplace of ideas, because of course, by this time we're talking about the potential impact that error could have on second or even third generation Christians. Because there was already starting to be a few problems. And we know from the writings of the other apostles what those problems were that the early church was facing. And it was being inundated with two really pressing issues, lethargy and heresy. Lethargy and heresy. So lethargy as in a lack of energy, a lack of enthusiasm, because some of them had lost sight of their peculiarness in Christ. Their uniqueness, let's say, as people of the way. That's what the early Christians called themselves, people of the way. But they started to lose their way. And they started to blend in with the world around them, which naturally led, of course, to heresy, to, to false teaching that came about as, as a result of competing philosophies and uh, those that were eager to kind of put their own spin on the gospel message. And so I guess things haven't changed that much in 2,000 years, have they? Right? Because that deadly combo of lethargy and heresy could describe the bulk of what passes for Christendom in the West today. Uh, and I don't ever want that to be us. And so today, instead of simply retracing the Eastern narrative that you already know and just basically retelling it to you again, I want to take the brief time that we have together to tell you why what we're doing here today matters. Why today is more than just the sum of its parts and why we need to celebrate the resurrection not only throughout the season of Eastertide, but as a safe haven for the changing seasons of our lives, as well as our only hope that we have for an eternal home. And so I guess just maybe to stick with that imagery, that metaphor uh, of a home, I want to give you a quick illustration to, to start out. So just by a show of hands, how many have ever renovated a house? Okay. All right, a lot of you. So if you've ever renovated a house, or you've even just watched one of those, those shows on HGTV about doing it, uh, you know the importance of something called load-bearing walls, right? You know, that's what holds everything else up. Well, brothers and sisters, Christianity has its own load-bearing wall, and that is the resurrection of Jesus, right? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then everything else about the Christian faith collapses, and we might as well have all just slept in this morning. And I'm confident that the gospel writer, Brother Luke, would have agreed with that assessment because before he ever wrote that pastoral letter to Theophilus, he learned the bulk of what he knew uh, of his Christian faith from one of the greatest architects of Christian theology, uh, one of the most unlikely converts to ever be convinced of the message and the meaning of the empty tomb, uh, and that was the Apostle Paul. And I want you to listen to what he wrote in a letter of his own to the people of the local church in Corinth. And this is, this is a little bit of a long reading. Uh, you don't have to worry about following along in your Bibles, just follow along on the screen. But I, I can't stress how vital it is to understand exactly what we're doing here today through this reading. And so I'm gonna be uh, turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm gonna begin reading to you in verse three. And Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, (coughs) excuse me, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ, and so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Sown in weakness is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I know that was a big old reading, and there's a lot of of meat there to digest. But let me give you just some real quick bullet points to take home with you so that you can know that the time we've spent here today really matters. That that it means something outside these four walls and inside the lives that you lead when you walk out those doors. And that what we're collectively proclaiming here, church, is not a fairy tale. Christ's resurrection is not a clever work of fiction wound up into a conspiracy theory to suppress the will of the masses or to drain the pockets of the faithful. But there is real meaning in today. Real meaning that, as that old hymn says, transcends all the reason of man and that lasts much longer than it'll take for these lily blooms to fade away. 
And I think the first and most obvious reason that Resurrection Sunday today matters is it matters because that's how we know that we're really saved. Right? First Corinthians 15, 3 that I read to you, Paul clarified, he says the why of Christ's death, because he, Christ wasn't murdered. He didn't commit suicide, but rather he offered an intentional substitutionary sacrifice that Paul said uh, was because Christ died for our sins. Church, that's an amazing claim. But how can we know? How, how do we know it's true? How can we be sure it really worked? How can we be sure we're truly forgiven if Jesus had stayed dead? I, I suppose we could hope. But at best, it would just be guesswork. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Because Paul goes on to affirm that he was raised from the dead on the third day. <coughs> And that's why Paul began the chapter by saying, it is this good news, the good news of the resurrection that saves you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Which is, is the second and maybe even more obvious reason the resurrection matters. Church, resurrection matters because it actually happened. It's a true story. Despite what the world around us may say, church, truth still matters. Uh, it's not determined by opinion poll. It's not swayed by prevailing culture. It, it's not the, what you believe is true for you and what I believe is true for me, even if those two things are worlds apart, because something cannot be both true and not true at the same time. And church, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. There, there's too much evidence to deny it. We just read that, that he, meeting Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a lot of eyewitnesses, which has a direct bearing on the fact that the resurrection church matters because it leads to radically changed lives. The changed lives of those 500 plus people and the fact that Paul tells us most of those original eyewitnesses were still alive at the time he was writing. And so he's basically giving an open invitation to to anyone that cared to, to come and interview some of those folks and compare their stories and to hear what they have to say. So I want to consider just a couple of them with you. Back in verse 7, Paul tells us that the risen Christ was seen by James. And not just by any old James, but the James who was one of our Lord Jesus' younger brothers. Uh, the same one who, along with the rest of our Lord's siblings, had, for the most part, uh, tried to distance themselves from Jesus and his itinerant ministry uh, because of embarrassment. Right? And, and the same James that went around saying things like, uh, he's out of his mind. And before we're too hard on James and the family, think about it. If your older brother said some of the things about himself that Jesus said about himself, you'd think your older brother was nuts too. Uh, but then later when we read about the history of the early church, this same James who at one point, along with his mother Mary, came to a house where our Lord was preaching uh, to try to take him back quietly to Nazareth for a little rest. Right? Uh, that same James turns out to be one of Christendom's greatest leaders. And now, instead of questioning Jesus' sanity, he boldly proclaims that his older brother is the risen Christ. And church, that only happens because of the reality of the resurrection. Apostle Paul's story is even more amazing. As he says of himself, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If you don't remember the story, again, Luke jumps in here and fills that out in Acts chapter 9. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. One commentator said on this, few stories are as thrilling as Paul's Damascus Road conversion, where through the power of the risen Christ, a man who had been a hate-filled villain became a love-filled hero submitting himself completely to Jesus and then empowered to spread the gospel throughout the known world. And church, there's only one thing that could bring around that kind of 180-degree change in Paul. And Paul tells us what it was. It was because he encountered the risen Jesus. And church, Jesus is still changing lives today. And if he hasn't already changed yours, it's not too late. And just like the apostle Paul, because of Jesus' resurrection, you can know that your faith is well-placed. And you can know that you're truly forgiven. And you can know that you really belong to God and you have a place in his kingdom. And you can know that you have a hope beyond the grave. That's actually the next point, that the resurrection matters because it gives us real hope for the future. Because, you know, if if there was any doubt before, the events of the last two years have been a stark reminder that death looms for all of us, right? Uh, And, folks, the statistics on death haven't changed. There's a 100% chance that you're going to die, and so am I. Uh, these bodies won't last forever. You're actually dying right now where we're all sitting here together because ever since the fall of our first parents in the Garden of Eden, the cells of your body and my body are literally programmed to die. Uh, the scientific term for it is uh, apoptosis. It describes uh, the fact that every single day the average person loses between 50 to 70 billion cells. That's 350 billion dead cells a week. And so no wonder I need to lay down on Sunday afternoons and take a nap. <laughs> right? Because our bodies wear out. They sag, right? They expand in all the wrong places. They wrinkle. The joints get creaky. Right? The arteries harden. The heart slows. The eyes grow dim. Back gets stooped and arms get weak. And eventually... They stop working altogether. So death is not a question of if. Death is a question of when. And we don't like to think about it, but it's still true. But according to the Apostle Paul, the greater truth is that death is not the end of our story. But rather the beginning of the life that God intended it to be. That's why at almost every funeral I preach, I try to work in the words of R.C. Sproul, who said at one memorial, he said, The loved one who we mourn today has not left the land of the living to go to the land of the dying, but rather they have left us here in the land of the dying to go on to the land of the living, making every cemetery we visit not a burial ground, but a resurrection ground. All because, as Paul reminds us, the risen Jesus is the first of a great harvest of all who have died, and that everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life, a resurrected life. A resurrected life church that matters because it assures us of eternity. 
an eternity that's only just begun when something truly amazing and mind-blowing is going to happen. And namely that our bodies, these bodies that we're in right now, whether we've been buried or burned or dumped in the river or had our ashes scattered to the wind, are going to be raised and transformed. And I know trying to think about that prompts a whole truckload of questions like, you know, how's that all going to happen? Uh, how's it going to come about? Uh, to which I would only say, frankly, I don't have a clue. But, but one thing I do know, I do know if God can create the universe ex nihilo, and then he can take the dust of that earth and form the first human being, he can absolutely jigsaw all the atomic bits of you back together whenever and however he wants to. Because as Paul makes clear, our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Which along with other things means the resurrection matters because until ours happens, until we physically realize that resurrection promise, it inspires us, church, to live for Christ here and now. It means until Jesus returns, we've got work to do. And it's not always easy for those who belong to him. And so Paul concludes this chapter about the resurrection with his most important word of encouragement saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? Our labor to introduce people to Jesus, the risen Jesus, and to proclaim all of Christ over all of life with energy and with enthusiasm Refusing to bend to the culture of the woke or to blend in with the vain philosophies of this world. But church, going out dressed in the full armor of God and wielding the truth of God's word and the reality of the resurrection until every heresy falls in defeat before our King Jesus, who says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I don't even know how we can express our gratitude for all that you were willing to do for us. Lord, we're gathered here this morning, uh, not only at the foot of the cross, but at the entrance to the empty tomb, knowing that you lived and died to redeem us. And Lord, we are just grateful. We are humbled. We are thankful. And we ask, Lord, that you would send us out not only into this week, but into the rest of this year. Uh, to give honor and glory to you and to proclaim the risen Christ in every area of our lives, in every place that we go, and with everyone that we meet. And we ask you, Lord, to command this of us and grant it to us in your name. Amen.